Welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 738 of WaveScan for release on Sunday, April 16th, 2023. On the program today, radio weddings in the sky, and a lot more information about the world of international radio. Well, the history of human flight by aerial balloon goes way back nearly two and a half centuries ago. It was on November 21st, 1783, that the first free flight carrying a human occurred, and the event was staged in Paris, France. The balloon that carried the two men, François Pilatre de Rossier and François Laurent, the Marquis of Arlander, was a hot air balloon made by the Montgolfier brothers from paper and silk. Here's that story now from Ray Robinson. Thanks, Jeff. The two Frenchmen in that now historic aerial event stood on a circular platform attached to the bottom of the balloon and they hand-fed the fire through openings on either side of the balloon skirt. The balloon reached an altitude of at least 500 feet and travelled about five and a half miles before landing safely 25 minutes later. More than 80 years later, the first wedding was conducted in association with a free-flight aerial balloon on November 8, 1865. The original plan was for the young couple, Dr John Boynton and Miss Mary Jenkins, to exchange their wedding vows while riding in a balloon high over New York City. However, the officiant, Dr H.W. Beecher, refused to conduct the wedding ceremony in the sky, so instead the ceremony was conducted indoors in the luxury Fifth Avenue Hotel at 200 Fifth Avenue in New York City. And then afterwards, the newly married couple rode in the sky balloon, watched by a crowd of 6,000 spectators at Central Park, and while aloft they signed the official documents. The balloon flight ended in Mount Vernon, just a short distance away. Two years later, at 4.30pm on Saturday, July 6th, 1867, a true wedding in the sky was conducted. A balloon with three people aboard in the hanging basket was tethered several hundred feet above Union Park in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, during a regional exhibition. The bridal pair were Mr J.W. Smithson and Miss Maggie Fawnshell, together with a local wedding officiant. After the wedding ceremony in the sky ended, the tethered balloon was pulled down, the officiant left, and the balloon pilot went aboard. Then, with the pilot, the balloon drifted off to the southeast and joined in an unofficial and unplanned race with a railway train travelling in the same direction. Shortly afterwards, the balloon with the newly married couple aboard landed safely near McKeesport. Six years after that, in November 1873, Professor A. A. Lay and Miss Mary Smith were married in another tethered balloon 900 feet above the city gardens in San Francisco, California. 
After the official ceremony in the sky, the balloon was hauled down, and everyone then got out from the basket and celebrated in the wedding reception on the ground. The following year, it's now in 1874, the famous travelling circus entrepreneur Phineas T. Barnum got into the act with an aerial balloon wedding above the Hippodrome in Cincinnati, Ohio. It stated that 50,000 spectators witnessed the ceremony high in the sky when Charles Colton and Mary Walsh were wed on October the 19th. They were both employed in the Barnum Circus, Charles in the business office and Mary with her horse riding acts. After the mile-high ride in the balloon gondola, a repeat traditional wedding ceremony was performed on the ground in the Catholic Cathedral at the insistence of the bride. Another balloon wedding that attracted a huge crowd was staged above the Narragansett Park in Providence during the 1888 Rhode Island State Fair. The wedding ceremony was conducted in the specially prepared bridal car as the balloon was held at ground level by 24 men. At the conclusion of the wedding ceremony for Mr Edward Davis and Miss Margaret Buckley, a father and son team of aeronauts took the balloon skyward while an estimated 40,000 people watched the event. The balloon landed in a swamp near Easton, 30 miles distant, and the wedding couple clung to the ropes above the basket to stay out of the water. They completed their marital journey by train. A Chattanooga, Tennessee couple got married in a balloon on June 28, 1897. Soon after the vows were exchanged, the married couple found themselves drifting over the Tennessee River, where the bride became frightened and jumped into the water from a height of 100 feet. The groom waited until the balloon reached 1,000 feet, and then he jumped into the water below with the use of a parachute. Fortunately, neither of the bridal pair were hurt. Sometimes it's said it's love at first sight. Well, we include the story not of love at first sight, but rather love at first flight. On July the 17th, 1909, Dr. Sidney Stowell met Miss Blanche Hughes for the first time at the Pittsfield Aero Park in Massachusetts, and he dared her to fly with him in his aero balloon. She accepted, and they travelled for 50 miles, two miles above the earth. Eighteen months later, they were married in a Christmas wedding. A couple of weeks later, in August 1909, another young couple planned a balloon wedding, but the pastor said no, so they celebrated their wedding in a more traditional location. However, at midnight, the newly married couple, Roger Burnham and Mrs Eleanor Burnham, nay Waring, boarded a balloon and took a journey of 200 miles towards Boston. After daylight, the balloon came down on top of an apple tree, and the married couple climbed down the tree back onto land again. At 3pm on Tuesday, June 1st, 1909, President William Taft, in the East Room of the White House in Washington, D.C., pressed the telegraph key, and the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition, or AYPE, in Seattle, Washington State, was officially declared open. The massive World's Fair lasted for four months and it was attended by three million people from across the globe. Many great wonders were demonstrated in the AYPE Fair, including a dirigible balloon that toured above the city of Seattle. The wonder of the new radio telephone was demonstrated and two unique public weddings were celebrated. In addition, as appalling as this may seem to us today, a raffle was also conducted, with the prize being an orphaned infant baby boy. 
Winners were declared in the raffle, but no one claimed the baby boy. So the baby boy, identified only as Ernest, was returned to an orphanage. Seattle's successful radio experimenter, the 21-year-old William Dubilia, demonstrated his compact radio equipment at AYPE, much to the amazement of the many onlookers. It stated that at one stage a local entrepreneur installed a radio receiver in a small tent on the fairgrounds and that he charged a small fee for curious onlookers to listen to the programme coming from the Dubilia transmitter several miles distant. Subsequently, Dubilia installed his radio transmitter and receiver at each end inside Manufacturers Hall at the 1909 Seattle Fair. It's also stated that he demonstrated his equipment with the transmitter in an aerial balloon and the receiver on the ground. Two public weddings were conducted in the fairgrounds, one at the Ferris wheel and another in the gondola of the aerial balloon. Newspaper reports nationwide spoke glowingly of the effectiveness of the Dubilia radio experiments, including the occasion of the summer wedding when streetcar conductor Kerry Beeb and Miss Margaret Hall exchanged their nuptial vows in the gondola attached to the aerial balloon. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Ray Robinson at KVOH in Los Angeles. So this to me is the most important slide of all, because if you're putting all this stuff out there and people don't, you know, you don't have credibility you know, what are, what are you really doing? And I, I think this is really our answer to the fact that people say, oh, you know, the Chinese, you know, have much more content on the air than you do or the Russians or whatever. But um, are, are they going to register um, these sort of numbers? Now, you'll notice Russia, uh, the numbers are probably, it's probably one of the lowest in, as, as well as Iran. But you know, I, I would say, you know, when you're talking about like Myanmar and Ethiopia, Haiti and Nigeria, Tanzania in the 90s, even in this country, you would probably not find a domestic media outlet that would be able to rack up these sort of trust numbers. So it is really, really remarkable. Uh, and, and I would argue that even in this day and age, if you're in the 70s, it's probably pretty darn impressive to have 70-something percent of your audience um, trusting uh, what, your, what your content is saying. And this uh, a Gallup, Cantar, there used to be a Intermedia, used to be a company that did these sort of surveys. I don't know what, what happened to them. But, um, I, I, you know, this is the best data I've got. Again, remember, we're government-owned, government-funded, non-commercial, non-profit. So uh, we're not out there chasing ratings, and we're not necessarily going to have the sort of uh, robust uh, data that you're going to find with a commercial entity, which, you know, obviously needs to demonstrate to advertisers and such, uh, you know, the reach of their uh, audience. Uh, obviously, one thing that we've been building on in recent years is social media, um, and VOA does have a, a robust presence now on the major platforms and um, I'm very active personally on um, uh, Twitter as well, as are a number of other VOA correspondents. And it really does change the ballgame because for, for an operation like VOA, it cannot be a one-size-fits-all package. You cannot just put out a Facebook page in English and say, okay, that's it, that's our social media presence, we're done. Some countries, you know, Twitter is, is not a player. Others, 
you know, Facebook is huge. I remember sitting in Burma and streaming via Facebook uh, our Burmese language evening newscast, which you know was coming over the the internet and the cell phone system in in Burma in a day and age like this. You know that's absolutely critical right now. So it's a, it's another uh, force multiplier, another distribution system. You know, I've, when I've tuned in in the afternoons, WRMI, sometimes the reception isn't that great, so I can, you know, tune in. To, you've, got a, you've got a stream, uh, you know, on your web page, uh, whatever. I don't think you have a Twitter feed, though, do you? Okay, well, you're, you're in charge, and you vetoed it, right? You said no, okay. Don't have the time, okay. Uh, okay, on Facebook, okay, great. Okay, great. Maybe some uh, social media innovations coming to WRMI. We'll see. So, um, you know, this is a big question we get. You know, we don't hear you on shortwave radio that much anymore. You know, what, what sort of audience do you have? And what people do not realize is most of the output of VOA for some years now has really been with uh, digital content and uh, more and more with um, uh, television as well. Some of these uh, VOA... Uh, language services are operating 24-7 on TV, but uh, many, many of them have 30 minutes, an hour a day. Um, I, last time I checked, about 30-something were doing, I believe, television. I'm not sure how many are doing radio still, but radio for, VO, for VOA is still pretty robust in Africa and Southeast Asia, and then if we're talking about shortwave, I can assure you, because I've been to North Korea, and I've talked to people in North Korea who do listen to RFA and VOA on shortwave. It's beamed uh, out of uh, South Korea and other places. Uh, there, is a, there is still an audience uh, for it, uh, definitely, and according to this, uh, the audience is growing even for radio. So, um, there you go. And uh, as I uh, t- was talking with some people before earlier, we have two correspondents at the White House, two at State Department, one at the Pentagon, one on Capitol Hill, uh, some other D.C.-based correspondents, and we have bureaus around the world. Um, I believe VOA claims, maybe there was a claim a few years ago that was the largest master control operation in the world for any broadcaster. I don't have any way to verify that. Um, although, I, you know, we definitely don't have as many transmitter sites in one location as, as, as you have in Okeechobee. Uh, but um, it, it is still a pretty robust uh, operation. I think everything recently has gone to HD. Uh, I think everybody's broadcasting in HD on, that, are, that are doing television right now. And um, so a little bit about what I was doing for four and a half years in the White House this was our very luxurious accommodations in the basement of the West Wing. This is the area of the old Kennedy swimming pool. Actually, it was Roosevelt put in the swimming pool, and it, it, Nixon was the one that tore out the swimming pool. And so it was during the Nixon administration that the modern press area went into the White House. The thermostat in this room was stuck at about 68 degrees Fahrenheit, so I would usually have on three layers every day, even when it was like 95 degrees and 100% humidity here in Washington, D.C. Now, 
this same booth has existed for many decades, and what I was told, Filomino Jury, who I mentioned, who was there during the Nixon administration, she used to have a, um, there used to be a full-time engineer in the booth, and they were both chain smokers. I cannot even imagine that these days, that, you know, it would just be two people puffing along all day. Um, and, uh, yeah, this, uh, you had to get along very, very well with your booth mate, uh, right now, uh, we have um, uh, Patsy Wudakis-Water is the bureau chief, and Anita Powell is the senior White House uh, correspondent. Uh, and so they're the ones that are um, in this booth. But when we went, when we obviously when the pandemic hit, we were not putting two people in the booth like this all day long. We started taking turns on the days, and then the other person would, would work from home. So... Um, uh, part of my job, that's me here holding um, a boom mic. And so I think Trump used to, tr you know, for a while I was trying to figure out why was the boom mic guy asking me questions all the time, right? But I was there. I was a reporter, but I was also the radio pool reporter. So my primary job um, when I was a pool reporter on those days was to get broadcast quality sound of anything that the president said. And so that's not going to happen you know, carrying, uh, you know, just a cell phone. I would use this as a backup sometime, especially on Air Force One, because the president, uh, uh, one thing that Trump would do is he was uh, possibly would walk back to the press cabin at any moment. So I made sure that within three to five seconds I could fire up my gear, which meant that I could never take a sleeping pill and knock myself out on a trans-Pacific flight. And then we'd hit the ground. It'd be daytime where we landed in Asia, and the, the president would go, his schedule would last 18 hours. He's very well rested. He has a bed on the plane. We, our seats were, I would compare them to the old economy class seats. They sort of went back a little bit. You had a little, a little bit of pitch, a little bit of width, but they were not the business class or lie flat beds or anything like that. So it was very hard to sleep. So I had days literally that would go for 36 hours. And you wonder why I voluntarily gave up the glamour, quote-unquote, of being a White House correspondent. It was is because, you know, those trips do burn you out. So this is what it, when I would, uh, that we, we could put a suitcase in, into the belly of the plane. Carrying luggage on these trips, uh, having it checked was a huge problem because there were two different hotels. There would be the pool reporters' hotels and the, and the hotels for the rest of the White House press and your baggage sometimes would go to the wrong hotel or you had to switch out hotels depending on, on whether you were in or out of the pool. Uh, then they would have what's called the bag drops. So sometimes the bag drops were at 4 a.m. in the hotel. So if you've just finished work at 1 a.m. and there's a bag drop at 4 a.m., you finish your 36-hour shift, guess what? You weren't getting a full eight hours of sleep that night. So... Uh, you know, I, my background was started out in radio news in Las Vegas. And one thing I always learned about equipment is have two of everything, right? Everything's going to fail at some point. The tape recorders, the microphones, the XLR cables especially. Um, I, so I would try to carry two of everything, including laptops. So this bag would easily get up to about 50, 60 pounds for some trips. And then I had to carry this bag with me, and, when, and we're in the motorcade back about vehicle 27 on these overseas trips. 
and we would have to run because the president had already gotten out of the vehicles. They were telling, run, 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 run. You know, we're in suits uh, a lot of the time, carrying 50, 60 pounds of equipment. You know, it's 90 degrees outside in the desert somewhere. I, I was really amazed that somebody didn't have a heart attack, and fortunately it wasn't me. So, um, yeah, this is what it would look like when we'd be out at Andrews Air Force Base sometimes, 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, boarding the plane uh, to go on, on, a, on a trip somewhere. And uh, as I said, no life flat bed for us. We did get a pillow. Um, and you would uh, get, you know, personalized card, welcome aboard. So this is uh, me as a pool reporter at the uh, Taj Mahal in India, which if you've ever been there, the amazing thing about this photo, there's no one in the background. This is India, the land of a billion people, right? They cleared that whole thing out for Modi and Trump and, and family. So it's like, you know, I don't play tourists very much when I'm on these trips, but it's like, I got to get a photo of this. This is, this is amazing. So that should be a, a future QSL card maybe. So anyway, Twitter, at W7VOA, that's where you can find me. I'm very active um, on Twitter and um, probably do as much of that as um, writing news stories these days. And happy to take a, a few questions if we have time. Okay. I only have a general class license, so no extra class questions, okay? Uh, no, because it was pretty easy to verify that I was actually in the country at that time because I was filing news reports. So, you know, I... Well, I, I didn't operate from North Korea. I think that would have, you know, perhaps raised some, some questions. But the... Places like Bhutan, I mean, there are people out of there. I don't, I don't think anywhere I operated was like on the top five or top ten DXCC most wanted list. And I would announce ahead of times, I would let the, you know, the usual people know that I was going to be in these countries. So, no, I, I never got accused of, of bootlegging. And for DXCC verification, there used to be some sort of process uh, but I, I never was asked to send in any paperwork or something, but I always had a copy of a license to you know, demonstrate that I did get the license. And you had a second question? Yes, it's called Learning English. And I think that I, I do as much as I can whenever they ask me to do something for them. I love doing it for, for them. I think Learning English is probably our most underappreciated resource. I have run into so many people around the world who told me that they learned English from VOA Special English back in the day, or learning English, I believe it started in 1959. So it's been around for a while, still exists, um, and it, 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 it's on the web, and they do some video programming, and they have the, the radio programs. And I would go into bookstores all over Asia, and there people were, had an industry going on, publishing industry, picking up these broadcasts, uh, I think off the, off the web, and turning them into well, was cassettes for a while, then CDs and DVDs or whatever. Uh, and again, as was mentioned by Kate during her presentation, VOA's material, with rare exception, some of the TV stuff has content in it that's not in the public domain because we have rights restrictions with content we use from AP Television, Reuters TV. But basically all the audio content out there is in the public domain. So if any of you are broadcasters, shortwave broadcasters, you could run 
learning English. Yes, in Finland. I was in the room for the famous uh, Putin-Trump uh, news conference. I wasn't in the room for the one-on-one -on -one meeting. Well, that, that's the one thing I would have loved to have been in the room for. Um, so, yes, that's, that was my experience with, uh, with Putin. Yes, sir. I believe it's in a one-week period that, you know, that we reached 311 million people via radio or TV, and that they saw some or heard some sort of VOA content. Now, that content may have been a feature story on a, on a VOA television affiliate in Thailand, okay? It doesn't mean that they listened to a news broadcast, because... I can tell you when I was based in Asia, um, you know, we had, the, you know, it was like the Thai service or something was doing a w once a week Hollywood report. And the Russian service also does this sort of entertainment thing out of New York. That sort of stuff is really popular as, you know, obviously <laughs> more people are interested in, uh, you know, what Lady Gaga is doing than maybe what the president of the United States is doing. That's just the way it is. Question? No, they're not outsourced, there are people since the pandemic have been anchoring the newscast from their homes. And I think part of the uh, quality control issue deals with that in making sure the mix, because I've heard at points uh, that the actualities were louder than the announcer. They've given me, for example, I'm doing Flashpoint Ukraine once a week, sometimes twice a week, which was a 25-minute daily program, which it's in English, obviously. I don't speak Ukrainian. Um, and so I, I am pre-producing that program. I'm not mixing it all myself, but I do have the capability. I have a Comrex that they've given me at my house, and I have a mixer that if I had to do that program live or had to go live for whatever reason, I can do that from my house uh, which is on the Whitewater Peninsula in in Virginia. I'm 45 miles south of here. So <clears throat> we have a lot of people doing this stuff from home since the pandemic. And, yeah, um, and, and there are other networks, uh, commercial broadcast networks in the U.S. are doing that. I hear uh, people on the CBS radio network out of Chicago and other other places now, too. All right, so thank you very much. I'll turn it back to Jeff. Steve Herman there speaking at the NASB 2022 annual meeting in Washington, D.C. Steve is the Voice of America's chief national correspondent. And thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week on the program, Omaha, Nebraska on shortwave. Our DX report and much more. WaveScan is heard weekly on KSDA in Guam, AWR relays in various locations around the world, WRMI in Florida, WWCR in Tennessee, KVOH in California, Voice of Hope Africa in Zambia, and IRRS Italy. Send reception reports directly to the station you're listening to. 
Reports for KSDA and AWR sites should go to qsl at awr.org. Other correspondence, not reception reports, can be sent to wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week, good listening, everyone. Thank you.